Do you ever find it difficult not to ask why? When our lives play out in such a way that defies our limited views, it can be challenging at times to see God's hand. Like Esther of old, as we learn to wholeheartedly rely on the Lord through prayer and fasting, we are blessed with confidence, faith, and the reassurance that we were born for such a time as this. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I feel like I was put on this earth at this time because God knows my strengths and my abilities and he's put me in this sphere of influence where I can do what I love and for me that's family history. I can do what I love and I can help others at the same time. I believe entirely I have a purpose here and I was sent here because there's people I need to love, people I need to be in their life, people I need to help. We have a mission. Each person has a specific mission and help specific people around us. And this is why uh, we are here in this time. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Our discussion topics come from our studies from the book of Esther. And the first topic is introducing Esther. And the second topic is fasting demonstrates my dependence on the Lord. And to help us with our discussion today, we want to welcome back one of our scholars, Dr. Melissa Inouye. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Inouye is a historian with the Church History Department. And seated next to Melissa, we want to welcome our special guest, President Jean B. Bingham. Welcome, President Bingham. Thank you. Glad to be here. President Bingham is currently serving as the General President of the Relief Society for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Relief Society is one of the largest women's organizations in the world. So let's jump into our first topic, which is introducing Esther. Melissa, do you mind giving us a little bit of a background on what is taking place during this time period where Esther is alive? So we think that the Book of Esther was written around the 5th century before the Common Era. It has to do with the time when the Jews were, had been scattered. They were living in Babylon, and Babylon was now the Persian Empire, so a different empire. The story gives us a picture of a king who is basically all-powerful, like the, the king in, in cartoons who can just say, off with their head, and there you go. The king has had a 180 days of feasting, which is like a long time. Is that like January Six through? Months. That's <laughs> a long time. And then he does this additional seven-day banquet. Um, he and all of his courtiers are drunk. In the meantime, his wife, the queen Vashti, is off um, hosting a banquet with the women. So Vashti has like this kind of important social engagement. And in the middle of Vashti's important social engagement, the king uh, with his drunken courtier says, ah, let me show you my very hot <laughs> wife. Um, she will come and dance for us in her royal crown. And, and Queen Vashti uh, quite um, bravely um, says no. Uh, and kind of accepts the consequences of that. And she is then um, demoted as queen and um, a decree goes out across the land um, showing quite a lot of insecurity, I believe, saying, you know, all men um, are in charge and like women must obey their husbands or else. So this is the kind of system that Esther's coming into, one where women don't have a lot of power. And this kind of gives more context, I think, to her bravery. It's it, like, you know, we say that she was the queen, but as the queen, she didn't have a lot of power. Like Vashti, she could just be just, Dismissed, dismissed at any time. like that. So when she was saying, you know, if I perish, I perish, that was so possible. How does Esther now enter this picture 
uh, of being brought before the king, and what does the king know about her, and what does he not know about her? So Esther is brought to the palace as a candidate by her, her cousin, it's actually her cousin Mordecai. And when she arrives with all the other women, they're given quarters, but interestingly, the person who's in charge of all of these women coming in, the candidates, sees also something special about her, and he gives her the best place in the house of the women. So they have a year, all these women, to prepare really for their their auditions, shall we say. Okay. And so when she is, uh, the year is up, and they all come and they have an opportunity to meet with the king, she is beautiful, but it's her inner beauty that somehow, you get that in feeling, somehow there's something special about her that the king chooses her to be the head queen. So from there, she's put in a, a position, you know, through her cousin Mordecai, where she can really do some good, but also she's putting herself at risk. What does the story pick up from there, Melissa? So then the plot kind of thickens when um, Mordecai, her cousin, um, draws the ire of one of the king's courtiers named Haman. Mordecai has actually secretly done something really nice for the king. Mordecai has um, saved the king's life uh, by foiling a plot against the king's life. And, um, but Haman was really annoyed at, um, at Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't make obeisance to him, doesn't bow down to him. And so he kind of gets on um, Haman's bad list. And then Haman kind of whispers into the king's ear and says, let's make it so that there's this horrible group of people, the Jews, um, who are very bad and who are not obedient to you, um, let's like wipe them all out. And the king is not a very diligent ruler. I mean, I don't know why this would be a good idea for anyone, but, um, uh, but in this story, the king says, oh, that's sure, that sounds fine. Go ahead and like set a date to wipe out the Jews. So then that kind of sets up the tension um, where the Jews are, are scheduled for expiration and, um, and Esther's in this difficult position of being a Jew, but the king not knowing it. Okay, so I'm glad you said that because that's interesting. Why does the king not know that Esther is a Jew? Well, Esther's not a Jewish name. Um, the, the story tells us what her Jewish name was. Is it Hadassah? Uh-huh. Um, so she, she doesn't go by a Jewish name. Um, at this point, Jews were kind of assimilated uh, in the empire to the point where they, they would have a Persian name. And, and so um, maybe it was just an aspect of her, her identity that was, was not obvious to be seen. Um, and, and therefore, um, she didn't make it No. You know, we live in a world today where, you know, we, we take great pride and who we are and standing up for, for our beliefs and representing, you know, that we are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So uh, I find it interesting in this situation how it's, it almost seems as Esther is hiding her faith, hiding who she really is. So where do we draw from, from what she is doing by concealing who she is as a Jew well, to the just, king? It's not just her faith, it's also her ethnicity. Mm -hmm. For example, my last name is Japanese. Uh, when I was when I'm living in China, I don't go by my last name because Japan and China have a really troubled history, and it just avoids lots of things if you're not Japanese in China. So that's just an example. So ethnically speaking, that could be um, that could be something. Okay, President Bingham. I think another thing is that Mordecai advised her not mm. to tell her religion. He knew that even though there were Jews scattered all over the kingdom, that was not an advantage. Right, could and be so, prejudicial. Exactly. So can we fault Esther for hiding her faith and ethnicity? I don't believe so. If, if she took the advice of her cousin, 
who she lived with, who adopted her. raised her. her. Uh-huh. And she certainly trusted him. So I'd like to hear from you all. Have you ever felt to hide your faith? Frank. Yeah, I wouldn't say I had to hide my faith, but I have been in situations where it was, it was prudent. It was the right thing to do. Okay. And it wasn't so much about hiding as much as it was uh, about not revealing. Because the people that I was with, they were being themselves, they were comfortable and honest, okay. right? I started a charity helping other combat veterans dealing with PTSD. I recognized that my faith and their knowledge of what that means would affect their behavior. They, you know, they would have tightened up their their lips, their language, and started looking at me like I don't get it, you know, like yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a part of this because I, I live different, because mm-hmm. I'm different. So it's been worth doing at times, you know, not to be dishonest, but just to observe and be able to build a uh, relationship. And, and, and then in some of these instances, uh, you know, later on, you know, there's like the big reveal, right, where I... I'll be like, oh, yeah, no, I can't, man. I, I'm Mormon. I, I'm a Latter-day Saint. I can't do that. And, you know? like, and they'll be like, yeah, hey, get out of here, you know? No, 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 no seriously. So, Frank, <laughs> how do you know when you have to be careful on when you reveal some of those things about yourself to people? That's, the spirit is first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, operate by revelation and always, right? But when all I have is information about who I'm going to be working with, I'll... I'll assess what, you know, whether or not, what do I have that's of a benefit that I can build a relationship with this person before I go into doing that, right? Or these people, this group of people. And if, and if the religion isn't going to be a help, if mentioning it and knowing it, then just living the religion I can do. And it's, it's not like the religion goes away yeah. because I didn't say it, right. right? I get to show it instead first anyways. And that I think is a superior way to, you know, melt minds. That's that really. It's, uh, I see a lot of wisdom in uh, in that response. So thank you so much for for sharing that, Frank. Yeah. So uh, from the from the scriptures, um, we have this Esther finally brought before the king, and in the second chapter of Esther, it says, "And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight." more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Asha. So here we have Esther as a queen now. How is Esther now put in a position as the queen to be able to liberate the Jews? You know, a really important part of this story is when Mordecai learns that there is a plot to assassinate the king, two of his bodyguards. And Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king in behalf of Mordecai. So that's a really important thing to set it because later that's really important uh, to the story. So going into the king and saying, just going in front of him when she's not officially called could lead to her death. And, and so she's, she's very hesitant. She's like, wait, wait, I, I can't go to him unless I'm called and I'm not gonna be called for, her. I think it's another 30 days. What can we learn from her in this decision to present herself before the king? Well, I think we all know about, we've all kind of experienced situations where there was something hard that we had to do. And we knew that it probably wouldn't go very well, but it was the right thing to do. And Mordecai says um, in response, the famous line, 
and, and I'm reading this different translation from my study Bible, um, but it's much more famous in the King James Version um, and more beautiful sounding, I think. But it says, and who knows whether for just a time like this, you have attained royalty. And so I think this Esther shows that she, she thinks about it and she kind of weighs all the different options. And then she finally says, okay, um, let's fast night and day. I will fast with my young women and I too shall come to the king, not according to rule. And if I perish, I perish. I think it's really impressive that she risked her life for what seemed to be like a, a pretty small chance. And, um, but she was willing to do it because of the benefit that it would have for all the Jews. President Bingham, I'd love to get your insights on this. As you travel the world and you meet with faithful members of the church, how do you help them to realize their value and their worth that they are called to be where they are for such a time as this? Everyone has the opportunity to have an influence on others, no matter where they live, who they are. And sometimes we make ourselves uh, shrink. We don't think, I'm not someone who's important. I'm not someone who has had that kind of an influence. But you see women, you see people throughout the world. Everyone can have an influence. It may not be as large of an influence, but everyone has an influence. I love this one poem. I, I read just, just a few lines of it the other day by Marianne Williamson. And she says, we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. And I love that, that uh, says we're all meant to shine as children do. We're born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And when we see people wherever they are, we can help people feel that, that they are spectacular. Every single one, every single person that God has created can be spectacular. One of the things I love to share with them is President Russell M. Nelson's quotes from some of his talks. One of them is from A Plea to My Sisters, and he talks about sisters. He says, step up and take your rightful and needful place in the kingdom. We need your voice. We need your wisdom. We need your conviction. And when you help a woman understand that she has a role to play, no matter where she is, however small her influence might be, that if she steps up and takes that role, she can have a profound influence. It's kind of like when you, you, know, you drop a, a rock in a, a pond and you never know where those waves are going to stop. Each one of us has that influence. And so a woman has to understand that. And we have all kinds of encouragement from President Nelson to do just that. I'm sure there have been many moments in your life where you have been in a position where you have felt maybe, what am I doing here? Have you had an experience where you had that realization, you know what, I was meant to be here at this time to do this specific thing. And what was that like? I've had both those feelings that who am I? I think everyone has those feelings of inadequacy of how can I do what I've been asked to do? But then when you let the Lord prevail, you let God lead you, you recognize that you do have an opportunity and you've been given that opportunity for a reason. I may not understand the reason, but I've got to trust the Lord and move forward with that. Uh, at what point did you realize that, you know what, I, I actually can do this? You know, there wasn't just one particular time, because it, you, you, it's kind of a fluctuating thing, of course. 
But honestly, the key was trusting the Lord. I did not know why the Lord called me, but he did. I had to trust President Nelson, who I love. And I had to trust that the Lord knew me better than I knew myself. Because I didn't think I had what was, what was needed. But as I watched time go by, and I felt the Lord give me answers that I needed at particular times, that trust even got stronger. But yes, absolutely. You, you have to come to the point where you get out of your comfort zone and you just do it. I just wonder if you have like a story when you had to go way out of your comfort zone. <laughs> my, my first conference talk, I had always watched conference and I always thought if I ever had to give a conference talk, I would literally die on the spot. I would just <laughs> stop breathing. I would just drop. And the, my first conference talk, I have to tell you, it was like a bubble. You get up from your seat and you're in this bubble and you go down and you give your talk and you go back and you sit down and then the bubble disappears. I knew that the Lord was with me. Hmm. That's neat. I love that. And this has been a wonderful discussion on our first topic, which is introducing Esther. Whenever I do a fast, it's because I have some sort of a goal in mind. So I try to clear my mind first, because if I don't, then different temptations <laughs> will enter in. So I try to clear my mind and focus on why is it and for what purpose and what am I trying to achieve through this fast. An experience I had in fasting for a common purpose is um, when my grandmother had cancer. As a family, we fasted for her comfort and and for her well-being. And um, as anyone going through that knows, it's a difficult time. And there's just not a lot that you can do. So being able to fast for her and pray for her, that was something I could do. And it gave me what felt like power in a powerless situation. So moving on to our second topic, fasting demonstrates my dependence on the Lord. As we're studying the story about Esther, she's, we've talked about the position that she has put in and how she needs to go before the king. And I love how in, in chapter four, verse 16, she gets this idea. As I was reading this, it's almost as like she's kind of trying to hype herself up. It's like, okay, I'm doing something big. You know, like in a lot of Polynesian cultures, they'll, before a, a battle or a, a game, they'll do like the haka to kind of get all energized. She's doing something different. She's saying, okay, we're going to fast to give me strength. So in this whole story of Esther, there's no mention of, of God. And really the only spiritual context or mention that we get is this idea of fasting. So what does that teach us about the importance of fasting and what it can do for us? Fasting is such an important principle. And it's not only what it does for us, but it's what it does for a community. I noticed that Esther did not just fast on her own, but she asked all of the Jews to fast with her. She understood the power that comes when you combine prayer and fasting with others of like mind. I think at some point, even though we all participate in fasting, it, it can be a struggle at some time. So what is the principle behind the fast and what is it trying to teach us? Humility is the word that comes to me. Okay. I think often we think we can do it all ourselves. But then we recognize we put our dependence on the Lord. We are humble enough to ask for help, not only from Him, but from those around us 
It really helps us to see when you let God prevail in our lives, we can accomplish much more than on our own. I'd love to hear from the audience on how you have used fasting to demonstrate your dependence on the Lord. Carlos. Several years ago, we uh, faced a situation with my beautiful wife and uh, she became sick for something that we didn't know what was happening, right? So it was kind of desperate to try to find solutions and answers, actually. And we were just fasting ourselves. We were just trying to do our best. But then uh, when our family knew about this rare condition, they surprised us and they told us, like, we are going to be, we are planning to do a fasting as a family. And we have family back in Colombia and back in other countries. And they, they were just doing all together of fasting for us. The experience was amazing for us because we could realize that that opportunity was to understand how they love us, mm-hmm. how they were doing something for us. And even on the distance, they were fasting and they were trying to do their best in order to find the solution. We're still dealing with that condition, but we, we can see a light at the end of the tunnel now. And we know that we, we depend on the Lord. I think that experience was great just for us to see the love of our family. So in addition to increasing your faith and dependence on the Lord, you were able to strengthen some family relationships in the process as well? Absolutely, yes. And how we have a fast for several other people, but when some other people are fasting for us, that's a different situation. Yeah. And you feel humble. You feel that you are not alone in this cause. You just get a sense of the gratitude that you have for those that you know, engage in that fasting. So thank you so much. President Bingham, we had a, a question come in from one of our, our viewers. And as we watch that, I would love to get your thoughts in response to what they have to say. Hi, my name is Kiri. I'm from Southern Utah. And my question is about fasting. So when I read in the book of Esther, I was really impressed by how much faith Esther and her people had. And I'm wondering if you have any advice about how to make fasting more meaningful and even more mindful in our current day? You know, that is a great question. I think there's some simple things that we can all do to make our fast more meaningful. First of all, start with a purpose. When you choose a specific reason for your fast, you may have a question about something. You may need to work in a relationship. You may have someone who, who needs some particular help. But start with a purpose and then begin your fast with a prayer. When you go to the Lord and say, this is what I need, this is why I'm fasting, then you've enlisted. You've also made yourself vulnerable, but you have, you have enlisted the Spirit in your fast. Every time I feel hungry when I'm fasting, that's when I think of, again, my purpose. Why am I hungry? It's because I'm going without. I am doing this because I want this. I need this answer from the Lord, whatever it is. And I think fasting cannot be done without prayer. You, if you're just fasting, it means you're, without, you know, you're just going without food. Needlessly yeah. starving. Yeah, you're needlessly starving. But when you start with a prayer and you pray during that time and you listen for what are some insights about the particular challenge you're fasting about, even if it's, we talked about you're fasting for someone else who has a particular health need. If you're thinking about that, there may be something that comes to you it can be helpful. So during that time, that for me, that's how I make fasting meaningful, is beginning with the prayer, thinking about during the time, fasting, and, and then ending with gratitude, a prayer of gratitude. 
I love what President Bingham says about, you know, what she does when she feels hungry. Because I think um, sometimes when we feel hungry, like our stomach growls, we're kind of embarrassed. We're like, oh no, you know, I shouldn't be focusing on hunger. But actually it's a kind of technology of remembrance, right? I mean, it's so easy to forget people and to forget others and to only think about ourselves. But when we're hungry and we're fasting, that's like a, like a, a, like a little body alarm clock saying, ding, like remember your spiritual purpose. And then we can remember to pray or to think about that person again. President Bingham, as you work with leaders all over the world, how do we learn from Esther uh, becoming a leader um, in this process? And what can we do to, in any capacity that we serve in, to better lead in our callings or in our personal lives and our careers through her example? You know, Esther was actually a very good example of a leader that she started out being acted upon. And as time went on, she learned to act. For instance, when she asked everyone to fast with her, yes, that was it. But she also thought about it. I mean, you think about, we talked earlier about what her plan was. She figured out a way that she was inspired how to, to approach that challenge that she had. That was a direct result of her fasting and those who were fasting with her. When we are a leader, we don't just wait for people to do things. That's, that's the challenge, is that we, we have to step out of our comfort zone sometimes and act. But every time, action is part of being a leader. And Sister Nelson has a wonderful quote that goes along perfectly with what you just said. Queen Esther, at great peril to herself, stepped forward in a most crucial way to save her people. She was the right person at the right place at the right time with the right preparation to do what the Lord needed her to do. Great quote. One word that really stood out to me was preparation, the right preparation. I'm thinking about Queen Esther, how she was prepared for her role over time. And that's something that we can all look to do, is to be prepared. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but what's going to help us prepare? Certainly fasting, finding our own purpose, and recognizing our own talents and abilities. That takes a little bit of doing, doesn't it? It takes some self-evaluation, self-reflection. You know, what are my talents and abilities and how can I use those to help others? So as you've, you know, um, served around the world, how have you used fasting to help you prepare for some of the assignments that you've been given? I fast probably too often now <laughs> because I feel a real need for it. Mm. I'm, every time I'm preparing for a talk, every time I'm preparing, and I have a lot of them, not just conference talks, but when I'm preparing for a particular assignment, when I'm preparing to meet with a group of of members, wherever they are in the world. I want to make sure that I am in the right frame of mind. I am in tune with the Spirit so that I can give the message that the Lord wants me to give. It's not my message, but it's what the Lord wants. And so I find myself fasting. It's been a, it's been a wonderful tool that I have learned much more to rely on than I ever did in my life before. Thank you. Can Melissa? I chime in here about Please. leadership? I mean, the fact that President Beam is fasting constantly um, and going without food all the time because she wants to be prepared for these different meetings with different saints in different groups and saying different things and being able to hear different things. I think that speaks to what's required in leadership is being willing to prepare, to put in the work, to exert effort and, and to just not assume that you can just walk into the room and be a leader. Like being a leader takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of process. You know, in the church, we, we may not be the head of the whole 
general organization, but we all have callings. I think we all know the difference between a really well-prepared Sunday school lesson and one where someone just comes in and reads off the manual. Mm -hmm. um, it makes a difference. And so it's something that we can choose to do. We don't have to be gifted to prepare. We, we just choose to prepare, but that can have um, amazing results and it can really open us up to the power of heaven. What I really like about Esther as well and about this general idea of fasting is that it's also a way of mourning with those that mourn. So again, mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we fast, we have this kind of idea that if we feel sad about not having food, then it's kind of like unrighteous, like, you know, have spiritual thoughts, stop thinking about your stomach. But you know, when we, when we feel hungry, like acknowledging that feeling of hunger, that's like a feeling of, of lack, right? That's like our body saying, I need something and I don't have it and I'm really sad about it. And, and that feeling of, of sadness, you know, ah, I'm so hungry, is, um, is a way that we can mourn with people. And I think that's such a wonderful way because sometimes we just can't share people's hard experiences. Like we, we wish we could, but we can't feel their pain in our body. If it's like emotional pain of having lost a loved one or, or depression or um, like a hard health trial that people are going through, we can't feel other people's pain. That's just the way that a lot of bodies work. But when we fast for them, we do kind of feel pain and we do feel that kind of emptiness. And that's a way in which we can give something to them. You know, just that, that shared little tiny bit of, of, of sadness or, or lack. That's an interesting insight. I never thought about that fasting can improve our empathy for others. I love that. What would you tell members of the church or anybody who's listening and watching uh, that is struggling to strengthen their testimony in the principle of the fast? I would say try it. You really have to try it with an open mind and open heart. You know, I love this, the uh, scripture in Doctrine and Covenants section 64, 34. It's one of my favorites. But the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Of course, the heart is, you know, how we feel about things or it's, or it's love for God. But we have to be willing. If I can open myself up and say, I'm going to go through this process with a, with a, a seeking heart, an open heart, to find out if this really is a true principle, you will find that it is a true principle. And President Bingham, how has your personal testimony been strengthened through fasting? You know, I've never liked to fast, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I don't like to miss a meal if I can, if I can ever, if I can ever do without it. But I have learned over time that I must fast in order to receive certain answers. And it's been wonderful to know that I can rely on the Lord. When I show Him that I'm willing to give what I can give and to demonstrate my faith that I will receive what I need, then it's been a wonderful experience. President Bingham, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation, and Melissa as well. Really appreciate everything you've had to say. And audience, thank you so much. You've been great. This has been wonderful discussing these topics. And so thanks again for joining us in our discussion of our second topic, Fasting Demonstrates My Dependence on the Lord. I think unintentionally I've been a deliverer for other people, not because I'm trying to go out of my way to be the solution in their problems in their lives, but just being a friend, just being there when they need you, you tend to solve some of their problems and some of their needs. There's been times when I would be prompted to say something or someone's name or something would pop up in my head and 
I've always have told myself that when something that happens, there's a purpose. When I was 14, I didn't really have any friends that felt the same way I did about the gospel and, and testimony. And, and someone came along right at the right time to keep me from, you know, falling off and to help me stay strong in, in my testimony. The promptings and those inspirations, those are so important. And I've been helped by it. And hopefully I have helped someone else as well. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Well, I'm excited to continue our discussion in the book of Esther. And uh, Melissa, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, some modern Esthers, you know, with your experience in church history. Where do we see other examples of people like Esther? That's a great question. So in the global histories, which you can find on the church history website, we have a couple of stories, one that's already published and one that's coming out soon. The first story is a woman named Yeranik Gedikian. She was an Armenian Latter-day Saint living in the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. And she identified as an Esther. In her history, she, she called herself um, an Esther. And part of that is probably because she, like Esther, was a member of a religious and an ethnic minority surrounded by an empire which had different religions from them and in which they were in danger. She was born in 1884 and she married as a teenager. But in 1912, at age 16, she and her husband were marched off to a concentration camp for Armenian Christians. And in that concentration camp, her husband was shot and she was forced to labor there for three years until she finally escaped. Once she escaped, she made her way down to Aleppo in Syria, where there was a settlement of Latter-day Saints. And in 1922, um, we've got a photo from her that shows, you know, she's, she's happy and well now among the saints again, having found her brother who had, and also some other family members who had survived. Like Esther, she was in a situation where because of her faith, she, her life was threatened and, and she did pay a price for that faith. Um, another example is a woman named Maria da Silva in Angola. And she's really interesting because this is a more modern story. Maria da Silva was originally from Angola, but baptized in Portugal. And when she returned to her native country, she was super excited about the church. So she brought this huge suitcase full of all of the church manuals. She kind of gathered a group of friends around her and they would come to her house and have a worship service. And Maria was the only Latter-day Saint. So she would just kind of run the whole thing and she would teach all the lessons, primary, Sunday school, Relief Society, and Elders Quorum. She would teach them all. She gathered this group of about 100 people who were there, and she also uh, trained a choir to sing hymns. When a general authority came in 1992 and found this little, little cluster of, of people who were really interested in the church, he asked her, can you help us register the church with the government? In many countries, to kind of, without being registered, um, run a church organization is very dangerous and also illegal, and we don't want to do that. So um, she said she would help the church get registered, but it was not a really easy time to be working with the government. At that time, there was a civil conflict in the capital city, Luanda, and when she went into the government office to turn in her application on behalf of the church, she literally had to walk past the bodies of people who had fallen in a recent civil conflict, uh, just lying in the street. Wow. So um, she got into the government office and she presented these papers and the person in the office said, okay, well, you've got this weird little tiny religious sect, um, but don't hope that anything's gonna happen anytime soon because you guys are, you know, you're just not very important. You know, there's tons of people in front of you. It's gonna be a really long time. But within two weeks, the church was registered in Angola. So she's an example of someone who like Esther was a kind of intermediary between her community and the civil powers that be. 
She represented that community in a way that was dangerous and um, it's some sacrifice to her own personal safety. That's amazing, you know, as we focus on Esther a lot because she is in canonized scripture, but I, I love how there are so many other examples of Esther's in the world today. President Bingham, in your calling and in your you know, work, how have you seen examples of Esther's uh, in our world today? You know, I've had the opportunity, as you know, to visit lots of different places in the world. And everywhere I've been, I've found members, certainly um, women, but also men, but who have been Esther's, who've been pioneers, who have stepped out of their, their small corner and they have made a difference for the church. Mm. They have been brave. They've lived places that have not been comfortable to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And yet, they have grown the church. We had a foreign exchange student come live with us as a high school student. At the time, I happened to be a seminary teacher. And she said, I want the full American experience. <laughs> so, of course, we took her to our Sunday meetings. We took her to the young women meetings in the middle of the week. And she went to early morning seminary. <laughs> well, she'd been there for several months, and she had a lot of questions. We had family home evening, family prayer, all those kinds of things that you normally would do. And after a few months, she said, I have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. She wanted to join the church. To make a long story short, she ended up getting permission from her parents to be baptized. But when she was going back to her hometown, she was living in a place where she'd be the only member in a town of 350,000 people that was no missionaries. It was far enough away from the center of strength. There'd be no one there. We said, now it's your responsibility to be active. And so we sent her home with, like this sister in uh, Aleppo, we sent her home with every manual in the language that, where she came from that she could use. When she went back, she gathered people. She went to the, the mission president and said, what can I do to get the missionaries here? And he said, well, we don't send missionaries to these areas because they're, they're too far away from the, the center of strength. And she kept pestering him. Finally, he said, okay, here's a petition. You take it back to your town and you can get, I've forgotten how many, hundreds of adults to sign that they want the missionaries to come to their town. We'll send the missionaries. She took it to school, wow. her headmaster, and he helped her. She took it to the mayor, all kinds of people. She got this petition filled out and took it back to the mission president, and then they sent the missionaries. So when the missionaries came with those manuals that she had taken home, she started teach, she would pull children off the street that were just playing and see if they wanted to come. And, and she taught primary, she taught young women while the missionaries were teaching the adults. There are people like that when they feel the, the testimony of the gospel they want to share it with so many people, the beauty. And that's what this sister did in Angola. That's amazing. Do you feel like the Lord had his hand in that process to bring the church to her part of that country? I absolutely do. And I know that the Lord was mindful of her because she had particular talents that he could use to spread the gospel in that area. And so he brought her to our home knowing that she would receive the message of the gospel with that seeking heart, and she'd take it back. So absolutely, I agree with you. And that you would represent the gospel in a way that would make her desire to know more about it. Yeah, because we did our job. Yeah, because you know, you. I'm glad you said that because there could be a tendency to, well, you know, she's a foreigner, and we want to be careful of not imposing mm -hmm. our beliefs on her, as opposed to we're just going to live the experience of how we live our lives, and that has a huge, mm -hmm. huge impact. And I. I I see that in the story of Esther where there are some, 
other names that we didn't get a chance to talk about very much and their role. The per- first person that comes to my mind is, is Vashti. Is there any other insight we can get from her and her experience, you know, standing up to her husband and what that really meant? Well, I guess a couple of things come to mind. I mean, one, it was a really different time. It was a time when there were these certain cultural norms, which apparently um, could not be controverted, right? And, and Vashti was a very brave person to stand up against those norms and to kind of assert her dignity and be like, you know, no, you've got all the wealth, you've got all the power, you can afford to throw a bank for 180 days, you're never going to go hungry. If I don't have you, maybe I will go hungry, but I'm, I'm just not going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I won't cross the line. So I think that's, that's really courageous of her. And it did kind of clear a space where Esther could be in the place where she needed to be. I'd love to talk a little bit about that. And President Bingham, from, from your experience, how do we encourage the youth specifically today uh, to stand up to uh, against some of those pressures to lower their standards when they're put in a compromising situation? So I think uh, the key there is uh, living the gospel, people notice. Mm. You may not realize that they do, but it's very interesting how people will watch. They feel something. And you don't have to be overt about it, but just living the principles of the gospel for a, for a teenager can be pretty challenging. But their peers respect that. And I think that's what we've, we've, we've hopefully the message that we've given to our youth, that they can have a profound influence just by living the principles of the gospel. You think that there's a fear in some of the youth today that they'd be giving up certain privileges, you know, whether it's friends, popularity, if they, you know, maybe you're going to lose, you know, your place in this friend group if you choose not to, you know, participate in this activity or watch this movie or do whatever, you know, is happening in the world today. And how do we overcome those pressures? Well, I feel like I'm not an expert on teenagers, but I, I do think about culture and about cultural pressures a lot. And one thing that I noticed was that when I was a student at the university, I was in this philosophy class and I was kind of troubled at myself because this class was supposed to be a moral reasoning class and they would pit philosophers with completely opposite points of view against each other. But every single time I read a new philosopher, I was completely convinced. Like, oh, that's really smart, that's right. And then, then, then there would be one, the next one, which was supposed to be exactly the opposite. I would read that one and I'd be like, oh, no, no, this is really smart. That must be right. And then I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, where's my, you know, moral center? I have, I, I just like can't tell. Like, what's, I'm just convinced by everything. And then I noticed that when I, uh, I served a mission in Taiwan, and I noticed when I came back from Taiwan, I was a much better scholar because I had a sense of what was real and what was true. And I don't think it was just derived from like my knowing gospel doctrines or whatever. I think it was derived from living the gospel. And I just had this stronger sense in my mind of what was real, what was true, what was just, you know, fluffy, uh, what was... Bogus. Bogus. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and I, was a, I was much better at kind of saying that that's a strong argument and this argument is weak. And, and I think in a similar way, even at a, at a younger level, when when we live the gospel, we develop a kind of moral originality. And by that, I don't mean we like make up morality, 
But I think we, have, we, we develop a strong sense of what's real and we don't feel as pressure to just go with something just because everyone else is doing mm -hmm. it. We can be like, nah, that's not for me or nah, this doesn't sound exciting. And I think um, we can develop that when we live the gospel. Yeah, and that makes me think, if you know who you are, for a teenager, you've got to have your personal identity, who you are, why you're here, and where you're going. That makes it a little bit easier. And I also think it's very helpful to talk to them about reality. You're going to have not only peer pressure, but it's, it's, you're going to maybe lose friends if you don't do what they want you to do. Talk about it. Work through it. I think sometimes we think, we tell them, oh, everything's going to be just great. You know, you live the gospel of, well, you're just, you know, everyone's just going to love you and it's just going to be great. No, be realistic about it. But honestly, the first key is, do you know who you are? If you really understand that you are a child of God, then why are you here? And what do you hope for the future? That really gives them a basis of foundation so that they're not, so they do know truth from error and right from wrong. They can discern those things. One of the things that I've thought about with Esther is how the Lord works through different people and cons consistently delivers us from challenges when it's the right time. Okay. I mean, we need to learn, you know, Esther had to learn. She had some, some capacity that she brought with her, but she had things that she needed to learn. The Lord gave her time, but, but really gave her an opportunity, allowed an opportunity, let's put it that way, to learn to move on. And I think uh, that's something that's important for all of us. Yeah, I love that. You know, somebody that kind of gets lost in this story a little bit is Mordecai. There's something that happens with him and Haman, and I'm not quite sure how to, what, what to make of it, where he refuses to bow down. And on one hand, it's like, well, you know, you don't have to be so prideful, you know, uh, Mordecai. You can, you can bow down and not be disrespectful <laughs> because we know in other cultures, there are certain signs of respect that you have to adhere to. You could look at it that way, or you could look at it, look, Mordecai is standing up for his beliefs, but it leads to this big problem that Esther has to now solve. So what do we make of this whole story between Mordecai and Haman? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I think that um, you're right. In scripture, there is this tradition, right, of, of Jews in foreign countries not bowing down to local dignitaries who maybe because those local dignitaries are idolized, maybe because the Jews feel like there's a, a kind of religious significance in doing that. I know, for instance, uh, when I was a teacher at the university, I, I had this kind of interactive pedagogy where I had the students role play the Ming emperor and courtiers of the Ming emperor. And as part of this, I would um, have them do a kowtow. Do, do you know what a kowtow is? Low bow. So a kowtow yeah. is where you prostrate <laughs> yourself on the floor and you knock your head against the ground three times. Mm. And, um, and I had the students, um, so, so they would, they would uh, deliver memorials to the emperor, uh, but they would have to do this before doing that. Okay. One of my students who was Muslim came and she said, I can't, I can't do that part of your, of your classroom exercise. And I said, oh. And she said, you know, we only bow to God. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was a similar thing that was going on with Mordecai. You know, maybe they had to kind of prostrate themselves and fall down and can make an obeisance to Haman or Haman. I think you're right. The proper pronoun is probably Haman, but we call him Haman. Okay. So um, in English, so we're speaking <laughs> English is fine. But um, so, so maybe that's it. Um, it was just not appropriate. Okay. 
Okay. Think of the first commandment, you know, thou shalt not bow down before mm. any gods. And so that was very, very important for the Jews. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. So, and, and you know, there's a, there's a theme in the mm -hmm. biblical text about people not bowing down that way. Right. So. Yeah. I just always found that interesting, you know, because mm -hmm. on one sense, you know, it Come is. Come on, kind of, Mordecai. It's like, chill out. Is it really that big of a deal? But on the other hand, you can look at it as, hey, good for you for standing up for your beliefs. You can learn from, from, both sides of characters like Mordecai. Yeah. You know, and, and the different stories and, and how you what you choose to interpret and learn from from this example. And I think there's a lot of things in, you know, even with Esther, you know, there's there's some things that are, are we focus on that are beautiful and wonderful. And on the other hand, there's some things that, you know, are kind of appropriate for the time, but may not be as applicable to today's, you know, example of how we should live our lives. Well that's a good point. And that that so in studying this text I was kind of surprised by certain aspects of it. And, and I guess what this says to me is that this is an ancient record. Mm -hmm. This story is, is thousands of years old. It's a completely different time. And so there, there are ways in which we identify with the character of Esther, just like she was among us today. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways where the world that she lived in and, and the kinds of um, choices that she made and the kinds of things that she thought were the right thing to do just totally don't match up right. with our current culture and our current time. So it's really complicated, but and yet, like the you know the the Jewish community, um, the Christian community, for thousands of years, no one has thrown out the Book of Esther. We love the Book of Esther. Yeah. We get wonderful things from the Absolutely. Book of Esther, and we find Esther someone that we can emulate and and learn from. And, and I think this is this is refreshing. So I think as a as a young tradition, we're a young tradition. And, and also we are a tradition that was born in the modern age in the area of very scrupulous documentation for which records are still extant. So because of that, um, we sometimes feel vulnerable because you know, all the human things, all the flaws, all the um, mistakes or the foibles of the early saints can sometimes be, be brought to light. And I think that, that worries us because we think, oh no, if, if, if this church leader um, said these things, doesn't that just eliminate the possibility this person could have ever been mm. inspired? Or if this, this, this text, um, this text has these lines in it, um, does that just mean the whole text is, is ruined and that there's no way it can be inspired? But that's a kind of way of reading the scripture that, that doesn't take into account our basic humanity. And if, if you know, we're all humans. Yeah. And I think, you know, when God works through God's children, God is working through humans. And the humanity of the Old Testament is amply evident to us. And the humanity of our own history as a church, it can also be evident to us, but it can also inspire us and show the hand of God and help us to find God in our own lives today. Uh, President Bingham, do you have any other insights on anything from the book of Esther that you wanted to discuss or touch on? Probably lots of things, but you know, when I'm thinking about Melissa's comments, we find parallels in uh, the scriptures that apply to us in our day. Mm -hmm. And so we can look for things not to repeat and things to, we want to do the same. I think about Mordecai and you know, how he had to make those choices. He was forced to function in the midst of this alien society, so to speak, you know, he's, and he's fairly quiet about the religion that he practices, but he keeps his covenant, shall we say, he follows through on what his beliefs are. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that as a parallel today. You know, we are living in a spiritual Babylon, let's say, where he was living in the 
more of a physical Babylon. But what we can do is say, okay, yes, everything in this world is not a spiritual nirvana. It's not, it's not the, the end and be all. But when we keep our values intact, we can overcome. Mordecai, Esther, those are examples of they kept their values intact and they did overcome. What do you see as helps those that really cling to those values? What do you see helps them to hang on to those things? You know, I think remembering. And how do we remember? We read the scriptures. We read or listen to the words of our living prophets. When we're doing those things, when we're praying on a consistent basis, that's what keeps us grounded. It's so easy to forget. When we don't do those things, you find yourself. We may have all had that kind of experience at different times in our life where we find ourselves kind of moving off the path a bit. But when we focus on those things, we'll be able to stay. Now, President Bingham, those things seem way too small and simple. They can't possibly work. I know, that the Sunday school answers are what we used to call them, right? (laughs) The primary answers. They really are the important things. Though, you know, we talk about teenagers being easily influenced by peers. Well, adults are as well. You know, how often do we go to social media? How often do we go to any kind of media? And we're influenced by those kinds of things. How do we remember what the real values are? We've got to spend just as much time in those basic personal religious behaviors in order to stay grounded into who we are and to remember where we're going and why we're here. As we wrap up this discussion, if there's one thing that you would hope that somebody watching today would learn from and try to implement in their life about Esther, what would you say it should be? Courage to keep your covenants. As a baptized member, we've all made covenants at baptism. Those who have had the opportunity to Um, receive their endowment in the temple and made covenants. Whatever covenants you've made, have the courage to keep your covenants. I love it. Thank you so much again for being here. And thank all of you for joining us today. We want to continue to remind you and encourage you to, like Esther, have the courage to follow through on any prompting that you have felt today and that you will act on those feelings that you've received. Thanks again for joining us. Please come back next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.